Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I want to try to be an encouragement to you this morning. I know everything sounds so bad, and uh, the way the media just tries to make us believe that everything is even worse than it really is, um, we can just look around and see what's going on. Apart from, uh, you know, apart from all the other things that are really seem to be falling apart in this country sometimes in the political world and the sin and the churches, and, and we see so many discouraging things that are going on, and we tend to focus on those things. And yes, there's always room for things to improve. There's always th room for things to get better. And pointing some of those things out that are not the greatest sometimes helps us to improve the things that need to be improved. But for one thing, our focus shouldn't be on them. It should be on Christ. But I know sometimes it's hard when everything around us just looks so bad and everything around us just looks so discouraging. I want to set the stage for Acts chapter 1 before we read the passage this morning. Jesus had 12 men who left everything to follow him. And they left their families, they left their homes, they left their jobs and their occupations, and, and you can look all the way throughout the Gospels and see how Jesus called each one of these men and what they left. You know, many of them were fishermen. They left their nets, and they came and they followed Jesus Christ. And they had this impression. They were disillusioned a little bit, even after Jesus explained things to them. They thought that his kingdom was going to be set up on the earth. The Bible says that in Luke chapter 19. You don't need to turn over there. I'll read it to you. Verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear, which is one of the reasons why the disciples were arguing about who was going to sit on his right hand when he came into his kingdom. They thought his kingdom was going to be set up on this earth and they wanted to be the man. They wanted to be his right hand man when he was the king of Jerusalem. And Jesus explained to him, my kingdom is not going to be on this earth. And still they didn't understand. John chapter 19 and verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, of course, he's on the cross, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. A lot of the disciples were there that day, watching from afar. Peter had denied Jesus Christ when they asked him if he was one of his. They never expected it to end the way that it ended. They expected to see Jesus coming in, being crowned the king of Jerusalem. And they were his right-hand men. They were going to be right there with him when it happened. And now they see the bloody, bruised, battered, broken body of Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, and they watch as he bows his head and says, it is finished. Could you imagine how discouraging it must have been for the disciples? And then they have to go and take his body off the cross and bury him in a borrowed tomb that they never thought he was going to have to use. Doesn't get any lower than that. Doesn't get any more discouraging than that. And of course, Jesus rose from the dead, but even then they didn't understand, and they still thought that he was going to set up his earthly kingdom, and that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is risen from the dead. He's only on the earth for 40 days before he ascends back to heaven, but he shows himself to his disciples. He shows himself to over 5,000 people at once. Many, many people saw the risen Jesus Christ. But even then, the disciples were asking him, Okay, now you rose from the dead. Does that mean that now you're going to set up your kingdom? And he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Verse 8, but 
ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. I want to share a few things with you this morning that the second coming of Jesus Christ means to us as Christians. It's about as plain as it could be that Jesus went up into heaven and the Bible says that the angels were standing there and said he's going to come back in the same way that he went into heaven. He's coming back. Jesus Christ is going to come back. And I want to share with you some things that the second coming of Jesus Christ means to us as Christians this morning. And hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you. Let's pray, and then we'll look at some of these things this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for, the, for the, the love that you have for us. I thank you so much for dying on the cross so that we might accept you as our Savior and go to heaven when we die. And God, I thank you so much for this hope that we have in you, that even if we, uh, uh, even if, even if we don't pass from, from death in this life, that you're going to come back for us someday. And I know the coming of Jesus Christ is closer now than it ever has been before. And all we have to do is look around and see all the things that are leading and pointing to your coming. God, we can, as Christians, can get excited about that day because it means so many things for us as Christians. Pray that it would be an encouragement to us this morning and that it would be a challenge to us to live for you. We thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turning your Bibles over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The first thing that the coming of Jesus Christ means for Christians is it means that Someday soon we'll meet those who have gone on before us. Someday soon we're going to meet those who have gone on before us. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And I know they've said that for years and years and years. Paul said that in the, Old, in the New Testament. And it's been 2,000 years since he wrote the New Testament, or at least parts of it. But Jesus Christ could come back at any time. There's not very many things, if anything, that still needs to be fulfilled in order for Jesus Christ to come back. He's coming. And when Jesus Christ comes back, it means we're going to be able to meet those who have gone on before us. Boy, this is encouraging. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says in verse number 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is coming back. If you're a Christian, you're one of his. He's taking you with him. If you have loved ones that have passed on, take hope because someday you will see them again. The coming of Jesus Christ means you're only going to see him that much sooner. D.L. Moody, a well-known evangelist, preached all over America, all over England, touched so many lives, won so many people to Jesus Christ, saw revival happen in a lot of different places where he preached. He's been dead for a hundred years now. But D.L. Moody said this, when I was a boy, I thought of heaven as a great shining city with vast walls and domes and spires and with nobody in it except white-robed angels who were strangers to me. By and by, my little brother died, and I thought of a great city with walls and domes and spires and one little fellow that I was acquainted with. It was the only one I knew at the time. Then another brother died, and there were two that I knew. Then my acquaintances began to die, and the flock continually grew, but it was not until I had sent one of my little children to his heavenly father that I began to think I had a little in myself. 
a second went, a third went, a fourth went. And by that time, I had so many acquaintances in heaven that I did not see any more walls and domes and spires. I began to think of the residents of that celestial city as my friends. And now so many of my acquaintances have gone there that it sometimes seems to me that I know more people in heaven than I do on earth. But what, an, what an, a, a wonderful time that's going to be. And perhaps you have somebody that's passed on before you. Someday soon, if they were saved and if you're a Christian, you're going to be able to see them in heaven again. And the coming of Jesus Christ means that that's only going to happen sooner. The second thing that it means for us as Christians, turn over to Philippians chapter 2, if you will. It means that someday soon we'll bow before the throne of God to thank him for his mercy and his grace. Someday soon we'll be able to bow before the throne of God and thank him for his mercy and for his grace. Philippians chapter 2 is just a wonderful passage about, the, about uh, Jesus Christ and, and the example of Jesus Christ's humility, the fact that he was willing to humble himself and become obedient to death and die on the cross for us. But someday Jesus Christ is going to come back as a glorious king. And it says this in verse number 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A lot of people preach and talk about this event as if it's going to be some, some horrible event. It's something that we're going to be forced to do. And maybe for the unsaved it will be because there are so many people that deny Jesus Christ. They deny that he is the only way to heaven and they're trusting in so many other things besides just in Jesus Christ. They're trusting in their baptism or they're trusting in their good works or they're trusting in uh, so many other things besides Jesus Christ alone to get them to heaven. And someday they are going to be forced to bow their knee to God and recognize that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and that he is the Lord of lords. But for those of us who are saved, that's not going to be a terrible time. That's not going to be a horrible time. That's going to be a wonderful time. We're going to be able to, not have to be forced to, but we're going to be able to bow our knee before the throne of God and thank him for his mercy and for his grace. All the trials and tough times that we went through to earn the crowns that we gain are going to be nothing when we have the opportunity to lay those crowns at Jesus' feet. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? And think about this. Imagine all the Christians that have gone on. We have, there's a possibility of five crowns that we can earn while we're here on this earth. And those crowns are not so that we can set them up in our trophy room in the mansion and say, yep, I earned that crown because I did this, and I earned that one because I did that. No, those crowns were going to be there so we can lay them at God's throne as a way to honor him and as a way to thank him for what he's done. Can you imagine what that pile of crowns is going to look like before the throne of God? And I want to be able to take as many crowns as I can earn and put those crowns at his feet and thank him for his mercy and for his grace. Think about that pile that's going to be there, and we'll have an opportunity to lay our crowns on that pile. One day, the, the chaplain of good Queen Victoria preached a sermon on the second coming of Jesus Christ, and as he spoke, he noticed that there were some tears that were trickling down the cheeks of the queen. And he was concerned about it. He wondered if it was something that he said or, 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 or something that maybe he shouldn't have said in the message, but afterwards, he went up to her, and he said, I noticed that you had a tear coming down your cheek when I was preaching today, and and, and he said, what, was, it something, uh, was it something that I said? And she said, oh, no. She said, it was just getting me so excited because I do hope that he'll come in my day. And the chaplain said, well, why does your majesty hope that Jesus will come back in your day? And she said, because I'd like to be the first earthly monarch to take my crown and lay it at his feet. 
And what a, what a wonderful day that it's going to be. It means that someday soon we're going to bow before the throne of God to thank him for his mercy and for his grace. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The third thing that it means for us who are saved is that, it, that someday soon we will all be changed. Someday soon we'll all be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. And we use this verse, these verses many times to talk uh, uh, to read at a funeral and, and um, because of the, the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ that someday we are going to be changed in his image. And it says that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he asked this question, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We don't have to be afraid of death if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. My father-in-law just passed away, and he preached messages over and over and over and over about the fact that he was not afraid to die. There is nothing to be afraid of with death. Do I want to die? No. Do I hope I go in my sleep? Yes. But I'm not afraid to die. I'll die tomorrow, and you know what? It will be a glorious day if I was to pass away because I'm going to be in the presence of my Savior when that happens. You've probably heard this before. I might, have, I might have told you before, but uh, I, I saw this. It was a little bumper sticker or something like that, but it said, when I die, I want to go peacefully and in my sleep like my grandfather did, not screaming like the passengers in his car. <laughs> I hope I go peacefully and in my sleep. But when death comes, there is nothing to be afraid of with death. And that's exactly what he's talking about in that, first, in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm immortal, but I'm going to put on immortality. I'm corruptible right now, but I'm going to put on incorruption because when I see Jesus Christ, I'm going to be changed into his image. And when Christ comes back, we're no longer going to have to put up with the temptation to sin. We're going to no longer have to put up with this old rotten flesh. We'll be changed into his likeness. The songwriter said, I just want to please the Lord, be in his will in every way, to be lost in his presence, found in his likeness. Hear him say, well done, someday. This robe of flesh, I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize. When Jesus Christ comes back, I'm going to be changed. Number four, it means this. It means that someday soon the devil is going to be defeated. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Won't it be a wonderful day when the devil can no longer tempt us to displease our Savior? I know everybody uses that excuse. The devil made me do it. He didn't make you do it. He tempted you to do it, and you caved to that temptation, and you sinned. But the devil's not going to have power forever. And someday soon, when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to lose that power for all of eternity. Oh, he'll be loose for a short time. He'll be allowed to go out and, and tempt the nations for a thousand years. But when that thousand years is done, the devil's time is over. It says in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. Go down to verse number 7. 
And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations. Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know the best part about that? The devil knows his end. He knows that that's how it's going to end for him. And you know why? He, he is out there trying to attack us. The Bible says in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 that the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy your life. There's so many people, and I know they say it in jest, but it's, 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 it's a terrible thing to say. Well, I can't wait to, to die, and I know that I'm going to hell. I've done so many bad things in my life. That's where I'm going to be. But you know what? It's going to be great. I'm going to see all my friends down there. We're going to party. I'm going to shake hands with the devil. No, the devil wants to destroy your life. And that's why he tells you there's no chance. There's no hope for you to be saved in this life. You might as well give up. You might as well enjoy hell. You're not going to enjoy hell, friends. I'm sorry to tell you that. But that's the lie that the devil tells us because he knows what his end is. And if you see what the devil is going to be dealing with for all of eternity, you know that all the people who followed him there are going, to be, are going to be dealing with the torment of the same thing. Day and night with no way of escape for all of eternity. Could you imagine that? But, oh, I'm so excited about the day when the devil is going to finally meet his end. He's no longer going to be able to tempt us. Why would you ever want to join the side of the loser? He's already lost. He's already lost the war, and he knows it. Why would you ever want to join the side of a loser? Now, turn over to Genesis chapter 20. I want to show you this. I, I believe I pointed this out to you before, but this is a this is very interesting thing here. Satan can tempt us, but God can guard us from sin. God guarded Abimelech from sinning against him, and in this story in Genesis chapter 20, and if you've ever read through the book of Genesis, then you know uh, about Abraham, but in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham was going to the land of Abimelech. Abimelech was the king, and uh, Abraham went and, and was going into the land, and his wife, Sarah, was a very beautiful woman, obviously, based on what the Bible says about it, and he was afraid that Abimelech was going to kill him and take Sarah to be his own wife, and so they, Abraham and Sarah, made this little agreement between each other that uh, Sarah would say that she was Abraham's sister. So they get to this land, and, and Abimelech says, who is this woman? And he said, well, apparently this is just a brother and sister, and they're passing through. And Abimelech said, that's great. She's not married. Bring her to me. I'm going to marry that woman. And the Bible says this in Genesis chapter 20 and verse number 6. God said unto him in a dream, yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thine heart, for I withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. I don't know what happened, but God made the situation such that, that Abimelech was not allowed to get close enough to Sarah to sin against God. But you see what God says there? He says, I know that you didn't do this on purpose. I know that you weren't trying to take a man's wife to make her your own wife. But I kept you from sinning against me because I know that your heart was in the right place. That's an amazing thing. God can keep us from sinning against him. And it's a, it's a thing that we ought to be asking him for every day. God, keep me from sin. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to offend you. I don't want to sin against you. Keep me from sinning. He did that with Abimelech. He could do it with us. Here's number five. This is the last thing that it means for us as Christians when Jesus Christ comes back. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3, if you will. It means that someday soon we'll see Jesus. 
and all those other things are great. Oh, it's going to be good to see those that have gone on before. My mom is there. My father-in-law is there. Others that I know that I was close to are there. I'm going to see them again. That's going to be a wonderful thing. And oh, I'm going to be able to bow before the throne of God. I'm going to be able to do all of these things that we talked about, but I'm going to be able to see Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Those who are saved, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, the book of 1 John was written to Christians. And he says, we're the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Boy, what a wonderful thing. One day Jesus Christ is going to come back and we're going to see him as he is. And I think we'll be able to put our fingers in those nail holes in his hands. And I think like he told Thomas, we're going to be, be able to put our fists up into his side where that spear went in. We're going to be, be able to see the nail prints in his feet. He did that for me. He did that for you. One day I'm going to be able to see him. Now let me give you a challenge this morning. Turn over to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. The first thing is this. We should look for his coming. He's coming. He's coming. It's not a question of whether or not he's coming back. It's a matter of when he's coming back. And the Bible says, the day or the hour knoweth no man. Not even Jesus Christ himself knows when he's coming back. He's just waiting for God to give him that sign. Go get your child. Go get your children and bring them back. But we should look for his coming. Psalm 130 in verse number 5 says this. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. When I was in high school... The church that I grew up in, it was a large church, and, and long story, but they owned about 280 acres of land in Oklahoma, and they, they had it there. I mean, it was an, it was an investment opportunity. Uh, I think a, a good number of the staff members actually bought this land together, and they were going to use it as, as, a, as a real estate opportunity. Anyway, for a long time, it just sat as unused land out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma, and so they decided that they were going to use that to help teach some of us young men survival skills. So uh, they just, several of the staff members, the youth pastor and, and the junior high youth pastor and others got interested in that. And so they went and they took like a week-long class somewhere about survival skills. And so they took about, I think, 10 or 12 of us teenage guys, and they were going to teach us these survival skills out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. And so for a week, and we, we had no tents, we had none of those things. We camped outside. We had to make our own, you know, uh, shelters and all of that kind of stuff. They taught us how to do all of those things. And so on the very last night that we were going to be there, they decided that they were going to put to the test all of the knowledge that we had learned that whole week. And so they said, all right. They put a little list on the whiteboard. They said, put all of those things in your bag. We're going out. And then they blindfolded everybody. And you had to hold on to the pack of the guy in front of you. And one at a time, they took the person on the, in the back of the line and dropped them in a spot out there in the middle of the woods. And they said, you can come back to the main camp. It's that direction. <laughs> you can come back to the main camp at 8 o'clock in the morning. You're spending the night here by yourself. If you have what you have in your pack, figure out what you need to do to make the night as comfortable as you can make it. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon when they dropped us off. And so the first thing that I thought is, I am going to be asleep by the time it gets dark. 
I'm not going to be laying out here in the dark by myself awake. And so I put some things together. It was very warm outside, and there was, there was no chance of rain, so I, know it, I knew I didn't have to have a whole covering over me. But I, I was like, There's no, nothing is going to come at me from the side while I'm sleeping that I don't know is there. And so I built this little, this little type of shelter where it's kind of just like a little fence almost. It's about this tall. You pack it full of leaves and branches and all of that kind of stuff, and it just kind of creates a little wind barrier basically is what it is. And so the sun was just you know, right on the horizon, and I said, all right, everything's done. I'm going to sleep. And I laid down on the ground, and they had, we, had, we all had these little ponchos that they had given us because it rained, and you know, they knew it was going to be that way, so they, they gave us these ponchos and everything else. And I said, it was, too, it was too warm outside to actually cover up in a blanket, or I would have been in the bottom of my sleeping bag more than likely. But I laid down on the ground, and I pulled that poncho up over my head. I didn't want to see anything. I, didn't, I was hoping that by the time it got dark, I would be asleep. And I was almost asleep. You know, kind of when you're half awake, half sleeping already, and all of a sudden, something landed right on my chest. And, I, of course, I had my head covered and everything else. And, it, I mean, it was, it was a pretty big thud. And I said, what in the world is that, you know? And I pulled that poncho down over my head just enough to kind of peek up over that thing and look at it. And there was a frog sitting right on my chest. <laughs> and my heart, well, I'm surprised I didn't throw that thing off of my chest just by my heart pounding. But I picked that thing up and I said, you're not going to do this again to me tonight. And I threw that thing as far as I could, but by then it was already dark. And here I am laying there in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, my heart's pounding, my eyes are as wide open as they can be, and I'm thinking, there is no way that I'm going to sleep tonight. And I'm telling you this, I could not wait for the morning to get there. And you know the funny thing is, they said we couldn't come back into camp until 8 o'clock. By 7 o'clock, all 10 of us were sitting right outside the camp. But I'm telling you one thing, I know exactly what this verse is talking about, about my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, they always say this, that when somebody is going through a difficult time in the hospital and maybe they're fighting a disease, maybe something like cancer or something like that, they, the doctor will come in and just say, well don't know what his chances are, but I think his chances are good if he can make it to the morning. Most of the people who pass away from a disease usually end up passing away at night. My mom passed away at 3 o'clock in the morning. My father-in-law passed away at 6 o'clock in the morning. If they can make it to the morning, you got a good chance of making it. And that's what it is. So somebody who is a loved one of that person sits there next to the bed just hoping for the morning to come. Just be alive in the morning. Just, just stay with us until the morning. The doctor says you have a good chance of making it. And your soul longs for the morning. I don't know what David was talking about when he wrote Psalm 130, but I can imagine he had thoughts like that going through his mind. I know what it's like to just wait for the morning, and if the morning can just, that's how my soul is longing and looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Sir Ernest Shackleton was one of the most famous British explorers, and many books have been written about him, and but he was on a South Pole expedition, and he was one of the first to, to make it down to the South Pole. And they made it to a place called Elephant Island. And what happened was they, their ship was crushed by the ice. And so he decided that he was going to have to go back and get another ship, bring it down, and pick up those men. 
So he left the men on what's known as Elephant Island, and he was going to go by rowboat, which is all they had left, basically, and go many, many miles across the open ocean to try to get to a, a whaling village to be able to send a ship back to pick up all of these men. And later, when he tried to go back, huge icebergs blocked away, but suddenly, it was as if by a miracle, an avenue opened in the ice, and Shackleton was able to get through. And when he got there, his men were, were waiting, they were ready, and they scrambled aboard this boat that he had brought back. And no sooner had the ship cleared that ice than all of that ice closed back in on them again. And they would have been caught there had they not been ready for his coming. And so they contemplated this, this narrow escape, and, and Shackleton, this explorer, said to his men, he said, it was, it was fortunate that you were all packed up and ready to go. And they said, we never give up hope. When the sea opened, when the sea was clear of ice, we roll up our sleeping bags and we reminded each other he might come back today. And boy, that's how we ought to be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. But number two, we should live for the coming of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 3, if you will. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3. He says this in verse number 3. He talks about the hope that Jesus Christ is going to come back. And we can have the, the excitement about that. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, we just read, Where the sons of God doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that, we, that, that we'll, we'll be like him. When he comes, we're going to be like him. But he continues that in verse number 3, and he says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You know what that means? That means that if we have the hope that Jesus Christ is really going to come back, then we ought to live as if Jesus Christ could come back today. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught doing something that I know I shouldn't be doing when Jesus Christ comes back. I want him to find me doing something that he's pleased with. I want to live as if Jesus Christ could come back today. We have to be found working for God. We'll never be excited about his coming if we're not doing what he wants us to do. I remember when we were growing up, we, had, uh, we, we heated our house with wood, and we still do that today. So now my boys are the ones that are splitting wood and doing all that kind of, well, they don't split yet, they carry it. But we used to split wood, we used to carry it, we had always big piles of wood that we were moving around to different places, and uh, every once in a while we'd have a pile of wood in the backyard, and in the backyard we also had four apple trees that were lined up in the back. They were there when we got there, and they, they produced apples, but they, the trees had never really been trimmed or anything like that, and so they were just small. You know, they were, they were, I mean, maybe two or three times the size of an acorn. They weren't very big apples, but I'll tell you one thing. They hurt when you get hit with one. And we used to get into these apple fights all the time. There'd be apples all over the ground, and we're supposed to be doing wood, and we'd start, you know, somebody would throw an apple, and, oh, you get hit in the back with one of those apples, it makes you mad enough that you want to pick up one and throw it back as hard as you can. But you know what happened always when we get into the middle of one of those apple fights? Never failed. My dad would come walking around the corner and see us in the middle of one of those fights when we were supposed to be carrying wood. And I loved my dad. I, I still love my dad, obviously. And, and I liked it when my dad came around because we had a good time and we would, you know, he'd play with us and do all of those kind of things. But I'm telling you one thing. I did not want to see my dad when we were in the middle of an apple fight when we were supposed to be working. I was not looking forward to him being there. And that's exactly the way that it is with Jesus Christ. You know, if we're doing the things that he wants us to do, if we're living for him, we're looking for him to come back. I hope he comes now because he'll find me doing something that I want him to find me doing. Versus you're doing something that you know you shouldn't be. I hope he doesn't come back now. I don't want him to see me doing this. And that's why I say that we should live 
for his coming. If we lived as if Jesus Christ could come back today, then we'll do exactly what this verse says. We'll be pure even as he is pure. That's why he says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know what that means? I'm ready for his coming. Come, come, come today. I'm ready for you to come because I'm living as if you could come today. And here's the last thing. We should look for his coming. We should live for his coming. And lastly, we should long for his coming. And in these days, that shouldn't be a hard thing to do. You know, what happens is, and this, this, this happened in my life, and maybe it's happened in yours. When you're in high school, well, I want Jesus Christ to come back, but I'd sure like to know what it feels like to graduate from high school first. And then you graduate from high school, and well, I, I want him to come back, of course, but I'd sure like to see what it feels like to be in college and to have all that. And Well, then you get into college, and well, I want Jesus Christ to come back, but I'll tell you what, it sure would be nice to see what it's like to be married. And then you get married, and well, I, I know I want Jesus Christ to come back, but sure would like to see what it's like to have kids. And well, I, I want Jesus Christ to come back, but sure would be nice to see what it's like to have grandkids. And then we end up living our entire life without really looking and longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, every one of us, if I asked you right now, who, who wants Jesus Christ to come back? All of us would raise our hands, but are you really longing for Jesus Christ to come back? Do you know that that's one of the crowns that we can earn is those who are looking and longing for the coming of Jesus Christ? We'd all say that we are, but how many of us really are? How many of, really, how many of us would really want Jesus Christ to come back today? Oh, I got too many things that I need to put in place first. I got too many things. You know what the problem is? We have such a small view of eternity. We have such a small view of God. Nothing that we could do in this life is even going to come close to comparing with what it's going to be like when we get there. And yet we have such a small view of what heaven is going to be like that we think it's going to be, well, I got to get this done before I go there. No, we should be longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. Someday soon we're going to see him. Someday soon that last trumpet is going to sound and all the things that seem to, so difficult now are not going to matter one tiny little bit. Oh, that we would long for the coming of Jesus Christ. Turn to one last verse. I want you to look at Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19, that we would long for the coming of Jesus Christ and that we could say with Job in Job chapter 19 and verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. David Peterson was a pastor in Spokane, Washington. He told about a time that he was preparing a sermon. And he used to have certain times that he would sit in his office and work on messages. And his little, little daughter came in one day, and she said, Daddy, can we, can we play? And he said, well, you know, I'd love to. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm right in the middle of preparing a sermon. I'll tell you what. I'll come out and play with you in an hour. Let me finish this up, and then I'll come out and play with you. She said, okay, well, Daddy, when you're finished, I'm going to give you a great big hug. And he said, well, that sounds very nice. And he, she went to the door, and these are his words. Then she did a U-turn and came back and gave me a bone-breaking hug. And he said, Darling, you said you were going to give me a hug after I finished. And she said, Daddy, I just wanted you to know what you have to look forward to. 
You know, that's why God gives us these verses in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, because it is a comfort knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming. He's coming. The songwriter said, oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair, but Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day. He says this in the last verse, life's day will soon be o'er. All storms forever past will cross the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, a crown. The tempter will be banished. We'll lay our burden down. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. He's coming. He's coming, and I hope it's soon. But this life is just a doorway to something that's so much better. It all begins when Christ comes back the second time to take us home. And I won't have you turn there, but we go all the way to the end of the Bible. And we find in the second to last verse, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, that the very last promise and the very last request are found right there in that same verse. He says, he which testified these things saith, and here's the promise, surely I come quickly. And the last request says what? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Are you prepared for his coming? Are you prepared for him to come back? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I can tell you, you're not prepared. If he comes back today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not going up there with him. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to be mean, but that's the way that it is. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, what an encouraging thing. He's coming back for us someday. Are you looking for his coming? Are you living for his coming? Are you longing for his coming? Because that's how he wants us to live. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for the fact that we can have such a hope in you. Oh, I thank you so much for dying on the cross Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to accept you as our Savior and get our sins forgiven so that on the moment you come back, we can go home with you. God, I do pray, as I prayed earlier, that if there is anybody in this room this morning that does not know for sure, like the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. I thank you for that hope, but I pray that there is somebody that does not know 100% sure that they're going to heaven, that they would get that taken care of today so that they might have the same hope that those who have trusted Christ as their Savior have. God, we're looking forward to your coming back. Pray that every one of us would be living like you could come back today. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Not going to be long on the invitation this morning, but I want to give you a chance to come and get some things taken care of with God if you're not prepared for His coming. It's an encouraging thing. I, I, I'm trying to be an encouragement to you this morning, but perhaps it's a challenging thing to you if you're not living for His coming. If you're not living as if He could come today. As the piano plays, the invitation is open and you can come. <laughs>